pray now as we prepare to open God's word together. Father in heaven, I'm reminded of the, sign, the song, Shine, Jesus, Shine. And Lord, that is our prayer as we open the word that Jesus would shine through these ancient words that you have inspired here in the book of Jonah, that the Holy Spirit would now come and arrest our hearts and our minds. Lord, uh, perhaps give us a course correction if we need a course correction. Encourage us for the work of mission. Lord, do what you are pleased to do in this time, we pray. And Father, uh, we thank you again for giving us your word, for your spirit still using your word in, in 2022, and for all the ways, Lord, that you are currently at work, not only here in our city of Montreal, but in the province of Quebec, indeed in Canada. We praise you and we thank you that you have not left your throne. You are still on the throne, just as you ever have been, faithful and true. Our Lord, deserved of all the glory and the majesty and the worth that we can ascribe to you. So thank you for being our God, and now we pray, Lord, your presence once again as we open your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask a question as we begin. At the beginning of the biblical story, so right at the beginning of Genesis, when God spoke those words, let there be light, who was God's audience in that instance? To whom or to what was God speaking when he said, let there be light? Of course, at that particular moment, there were no earthly creatures who were alive yet, and so there were certainly no creaturely ears to hear God speak those words. And so we can't be sure who God's audience was there, was in that instance. And yet what happened there? What happened? God spoke those words, and those words that were spoken to no specified audience, those words spoken into the formless void, they had an immediate performative effect. There was light as soon as God said, let there be light. Well, the point, friends, is that the speaking of God has a fearsome potency about it. The words of God carry divine power to perform whatever God purposes. In Isaiah chapter 55, God says that his word accomplishes, note that verb, accomplishes that which he purposes. His word accomplishes that which he purposes. His word succeeds in the thing for which he sends it. So God's word is remarkably, terribly powerful. And our passage of Jonah this morning gives us shining evidence of the sheer potency and the power of God's word. So here in these verses now of Jonah, we have what I would call a clear exhibit, a clear exhibit of the success of God's word, of the inherent ability of God's word to perform what God desires. Now, if you were with us last Sunday, you, you may remember the very brief 
message that Jonah preached to the Ninevites, the message is recorded in verse 4 of Jonah chapter 3. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's a very brief message. Well, now in verse 5 and following, we have the response to Jonah's preaching. The response of the Ninevites to this word from God that has come through the prophet Jonah. And the response, as we have said already, the response is almost a bewildering exhibit of the sheer power of God's word. Verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. Wow! This is remarkable. These violent, barbaric, godless, lost, stubborn people believed God. God's word had come in power through Jonah to these barbarous people, and they believed God. Now notice very carefully, it doesn't say that they believed Jonah or that they were mesmerized by the persuasive powers of Jonah. This wasn't about Jonah at all. This wasn't about the preacher. It was about God and the power of God's word which caused these people to sort of lurch very suddenly from a position of violence, calcified violence, wickedness, to move from there to believing God. They believed God. Their minds and their hearts were drawn beyond the human instrument Jonah, drawn beyond that to God who was speaking in such potent, irresistible power here. And so we could say that nothing less than a miracle has taken place here. They believed God, and and this believing God then issued into action. Watch this. Verse 5 says that the Ninevites did what? They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now to call for a fast and to put on this coarse goat's hair garment, very uncomfortable garment called sackcloth, these are both symbolic actions of repentance before God, of turning from evil to God. They are actually symbolic representations of mourning over sin mourning over sin. Remember verse 4 from the divine perspective that we discussed last Sunday. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will turn. Well, now Nineveh shows here by the fast, calling for a fast and the sackcloth that they are turning. They are penitent. They are repentant. And friends, I think the original audience of Jewish people who read this text of Jonah would not miss the irony here. And the irony went like this. Here was this pagan, violent, godless people called the Ninevites turning to God, believing God. At the sound of God's word, 
They believed God and they did it promptly without hesitation. But the people of God, Israel, they had had glaring instances in their history, glaring instances of the opposite, of not believing God and his word. Like that time when they were right at the threshold of taking the land and they promptly fell into despair about facing battle, uh, they expressed a a desire in that moment to simply go back to Egypt. In that moment, God wondered out loud about his people. Numbers 14.11, God said, How long will they not believe in me? Or when God's people had been in the wilderness complaining about food and doubting God's ability to provide for them. Psalm 78 recounts that moment in their history. And verses 21 and 22 of that psalm, Psalm 78, tell us that God's anger was kindled in that moment. Why? Because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. They did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Those same people of God who had just witnessed him work astounding miracles as they had come out of the nation of Egypt, now they disbelieved God and did not trust his saving power. Well, Christian friends, the the question is, what about us? We are God's people in Christ, and today is February 13, 2022. Do we believe God today? Do we trust him? Are we depending on him that he is going to lead us safely all the way to our promised land, to the new heavens and the new earth? Are we trusting him to do that? Are we quick to believe and to trust him today, like the Ninevites did, showing signs of repentance today, like the Ninevites did? Or do we insist, because it's easy to do this, do we insist on grumbling against him, doubting him, mad at our circumstances, walking by sight instead of walking by faith as we ought. Well, I pray that the pagan Ninevites would be our teachers in this instance. May we have ears to hear the word of God and may his spirit deal with us um, ever so as he does, ever so assertively yet redemptively. And may he do that even now. Well, let's go to now, uh, we're going to go to verse 6 here. The word reached the king of Nineveh. So now the word of God that Jonah had brought goes all the way to the top here in Nineveh. Goes to the king. And what did the king do? He arose from his throne. Notice the actions here. Arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And I say here, wow, what a leader. Here we have a leader who recognizes his folly and his sin, 
who has self-awareness of his error and who demonstrates humility. All these actions of donning sackcloth, sitting in ashes, these are representative of humility. The king of pagan Nineveh here is like David of Israel. After David had taken that census in 2 Samuel 24, David recognized his folly as the leader of Israel and he confessed to the Lord in 2 Samuel 24, 17, behold, he said, I have sinned, he owns it, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. As the king of Nineveh covers himself with sackcloth, sits in ashes, he is confessing his error And he is also, at the same time, he is identifying himself with his people who are described in verse 5. They had taken similar penitent actions. And so what we have here is a picture of the whole nation repenting from the top down. And the king doesn't stop there. Verses 7 and 8. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. So now uh, this king does an ancient Near Eastern social media blitz here. And the decree that he tweets reads as follows. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Again, friends, we pause here just just to reflect for a moment on the potency and the power and the effect and the success of God's word that has come through the mouth of Jonah. I mean, just look at the results of God's word that God's word has produced here. There is this thorough turning, repenting, that is happening in violent Nineveh. Well, what's the application for us as the church of Jesus Christ today? Well, the application is, I think, that we must, church, we must continue to seek creative ways, creative avenues, creative methods and means of letting the lion loose letting the lion loose, getting the word of God out as much as possible and in every way imaginable. The word of God, do you believe it, is potent to transform whole societies. We must believe that very thing, settle on it, get vigorous with spreading the word of God hither and yon, anywhere and everywhere, especially in this time, And we must do that tirelessly. We must do it abundantly and faithfully. Let's stay confident in God using his potent word to stunning effect. I hope you have that conviction that he's going to do that for his glory and for the benefit of his world. May the Spirit deepen us in this conviction that his ancient word, we sang the song earlier, that his ancient word working by his Holy Spirit is full of power in 2022, just as it always, always has been full of power. 
But back to verses 7 and 8. Here the king of Nineveh calls for a, really a comprehensive response to God's word. Notice for both person and animal. Both people and animals are to fast and to wear sackcloth. And what I think is very profound here and worth at least some careful meditation is this. Listen, it had been the people of Nineveh who had been so violent, so brutal, so torturous, so terrible. The people, human beings, had sinned. And now because of that human wickedness, Animals are drawn in here. By the decree of the king, animals will have to suffer a fast. No grazing in the pasture, no drinking water, and no doubt this would be a hardship for these animals, just as having Jonah in its belly was a hardship and a discomfort for the great fish so that it ended up vomiting Jonah onto the beach. This is a motif in Scripture, in fact. There is a connection between human sin and animal hardship. And I think perhaps one of the prime texts in this regard is Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, where there is a specific connection that is made between human sin, human sin, and the languishing, the suffering of land, beast, bird, and fish. It's definitely worth pondering just how deep and widespread was the creational, the creational effect of our human sin and our rebellion against Almighty God. The effect that our sin has had on God's world to ponder that so that we can then marvel all the more concerning the great and far-reaching redemption that God has given and orchestrated for his world in his Son, Jesus Christ. This earth, my friends, one day is going to encounter and experience a renovation, a transformation that will absolutely floor us. Well, I want us to notice also the very last sentence here in verse 8. Still part of the king's decree here. The king says, let everyone, what? Turn. Turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So notice the comprehensive nature of the repentance that the king is calling for here across Nineveh. So in addition to calling out to God, important, lifting prayers to God, important, but in addition to that, the people are also to take, notice carefully, definite action. They are to change their behavior. Notice, it's not just a prayer of repentance that is in order, although that is in order. It is nothing less than a change in behavior, a turning 
from evil ways and from violence. The people here are called upon to do a 180, a complete turn away from their established evil patterns, away from that to God. This is a radical change. And again, it shows us the thoroughness of the repentance and the turning from evil that is necessary here. And for us today, I was reminded this week of the New Testament command to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. To bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Part of the package of repentance is to bear fruit, to act, to behave in a way that corresponds to our prayers of repentance. In verse 9, the king of Nineveh shows, I think, a remarkable adeptness in theology. He says here at the tail end of his decree, listen to what he says. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, there's lots to talk about with this verse, but again, first of all, notice the king's adeptness in theology. Specifically, notice how wise this king is in acknowledging God's total freedom. How willing this king is to bow to God's total freedom. The king says, who knows? In other words, I don't know which way God will go. God's direction with us is his prerogative. God is free to do as God wishes. As a king, I'm calling all of us to comprehensively repent and to mean it. I'm calling on us all to show definite signs of repentance, but even then, having done all that, God is under no obligation to act favorably toward us. Who knows? God may turn and relent, he may not. This king wisely, wisely acknowledges God's freedom to do as God wishes. And this king bows to that freedom. Well, the question is, are we in a similar place? I'll speak from my experience. In my own life, there have certainly been times when I have been convinced that God must act in such and such a way, or that he definitely should act in such and such a way. And in those times, without my even realizing it, my prayers end up being more like demands and less like acknowledgments that God is free to do as God wishes because God is God. Beware of your prayers suddenly, subtly and suddenly turning into demands. I can easily forget that being God, he is far, far wiser 
and far more all-knowing and far more all-seeing than I can ever hope to be. God is always free to do as God will do. He is most certainly not bound to any of my demands. His wisdom for my life is always going to be what I need. Always, even if it doesn't fit with what I think should happen. And so I, we, I think, can learn from this pagan king of Nineveh who seems happy to let God be God. It's an important thing. And then there are at least two other things to notice here in verse 9 very quickly. First of all, notice the obvious repetition here of the word turn. God may turn and relent and turn. I think that's a purposeful thing here. The king is wondering out loud if God might turn from God's plan to overturn Nineveh. And then secondly, notice also the phrase at the end of the verse here, so that we may not perish. Does that sound familiar? Have we heard this before in our study of Jonah? Uh, Wasn't there another non-Israelite speaker in this book, another non-Israelite who was aboard a boat, who had expressed a concern about perishing unless Israel's God intervened? Yes, chapter 1. The captain of the boat had called upon Jonah to pray to the God of Israel in the hope that Jonah's God could prevent the perishing of the people on board the boat. Now here at 3.9, another non-Israelite, this time this king of Nineveh, hopes out loud that he and his people won't perish if God's, Israel's God will act favorably toward them. And in both instances, in both the boat captain's speech in chapter 1 and also in the king of Nineveh's speech here, these two non-Israelites express a, we're not sure what will happen, but here's hoping sort of attitude. We're not sure what will happen, but, but here's hoping. In the captain's case, the key word was perhaps. Chapter 1, verse 6, he had said, Jonah, perhaps, perhaps, I don't know, perhaps, your God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. In other words, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but, but here's hoping. And in the case of the king of Nineveh, here in chapter 3, the key term is, who knows? The king says, who knows? I don't know. God may turn from destroying us. Again, the idea is the same, friends. I'm not sure what's going to happen, but here's hoping. Here's hoping. In the case of both the captain of the boat and the king of Nineveh, they don't have any history in relating to the God of Israel, to the true God. And so they can only guess out loud what he might do. They they don't know his ways. They can only hope that this God, this God unknown to them, hope that he will act favorably toward them and be good to them in their very serious predicaments. My friends, there are so many people in our world right now who are operating in the exact same sort of way. 
they are lost. They're not in relationship with Jesus. And when they find themselves in a very bad situation, a dire predicament of some sort, in their desperation, they, they might say something like, well, there's, there's that God of the Bible that, that Christians talk about. Who knows? Perha- perhaps he might help me. I've tried everything else. I've ex- exhausted every other option. My Christian brothers and sisters, I want to remind you this morning that to us, believers, has been given the treasure of the gospel. We have been given the precious presence of the Holy Spirit of God who is our helper and our consolation in every single instance of our lives. As believers, we blessedly are in Jesus. And we know the blessing. We know the beauty, the worth, the power, the help the peace, the rest, the goodness, and the mercy that follows us each and every day of our lives. He has come into our lives, invaded our lives, and he has utterly changed our lives. Well, as we think about the captain and the king here, with their sad sort of, who knows who God is and and what God might do, with this sort of attitude, and when we realize that we are surrounded by so many people right here in Montreal in that same condition, my prayer as we looked at God's word today is that he, the Spirit, is going to motivate us afresh to really be bold and to go out and share the treasure that we have. When you've tasted and seen that the Lord is so good, don't you want to spread God's word, to share the gospel, to tell people, to get risky, to tell people about the king. May God motivate us, each of us, to overcome fear, if we have fear, and to declare to lost people around us Jesus and his story and his saving power. And may God help us to do that even this very week. There are so many people in our world surrounding us that are lost, that are, really have no spiritual rock to grab onto. And that rock is Jesus Christ. In the passage that we looked at this morning, there's that description in verse 6 of the king of Nineveh rising from his throne, taking off his royal robe, replacing that royal robe with uncomfortable sackcloth, and sitting in ashes. It's a very vivid picture of the king of Nineveh humbling himself, and why? Why did he do that? He did it because he realized that he himself had played a part in the violence and the wickedness that Nineveh was about to be judged for. He, the king, had sinned before God, just as his subjects had. But for our closing moments today, I need to remind you yet again, as we do week by week, to remind you of another king, a far better king. Let's fix our eyes, the eyes of our hearts on King Jesus in our final moments. Now consider Jesus, specifically consider his life before he took on flesh. 
and came to the earth. Jesus was rich beyond imagination. Colossians 1.16 affirms, listen, that all things, that's a comprehensive statement, all things, oceans, constellations, antelope, dirt, the sky, our eyes and our noses, rocks, light, darkness, trees, hyenas, intellects, all things were created through Him and for Him. Jesus was fabulously rich in terms of owning the entire material creation that he had fashioned. And he was also fabulously rich in the sense that he, if he had wanted to, he could simply speak millions of other worlds into being. He was rich in the power that was his. And he was also rich in the sense of being clothed with eternal, think of it, with eternal honor and glory. The other two persons of the Trinity, eternally, unchangingly, head over heels in love with him and he with them. Angels engaged in the non-stop adoration of him, their great and their benevolent king. The point is, before his incarnation, Jesus had been unimaginably, fabulously rich, beyond our ability to speak it. But what happened? 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace, <laughs> the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, friend, he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now, talk about a king taking off his royal robe and coming down where his people are to identify with them and to love them, and to give them grace unimaginable. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. But you see the difference between the king of Nineveh taking off his robe and Jesus stooping down to us is that Jesus didn't humble himself because of any sin of his own. It was completely unnecessary for Jesus to repent as the king of Nineveh had done because as 1 Peter 2.22 says, Jesus committed no sin. So then, why empty yourself, fabulously rich King Jesus? Why do it? Why take the form of a servant? Why be born in the likeness of men? Why become shrouded in clay, to borrow the term 
of Charles Spurgeon, shrouded in clay. Why subject yourself to birth as a helpless baby laid down in a a crude animal manger? Why come to this sin-sick earth with nowhere to lay your head? Why subject yourself to the heavy-duty temptation of Satan in the wilderness? Why have to ask a Samaritan woman for a cup of water when you created and you own every lake and ocean on the entire planet? Why subject yourself to a sharp crown of thorns and be abandoned by everybody and end up forsaken by your father, nails driven through your wrists and your legs? Why humble yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross? Why such poverty when you literally had it all, Jesus? Why? And my friend, the answer is that Jesus did it all Jesus paid it all for you and for me. Isn't it amazing? For us Ninevites, for our sakes, this fabulously rich king became poor that we might be rich. Rich how? Rich in his mercy lavished upon us. Rich in his great salvation bestowed upon us, given to us, rich in freedom from the wrath of God, rich with the presence of his spirit, rich eternally in our resurrected and glorified bodies, enjoying eternal pleasures at the right hand of God. You see, while we were impoverished, rebellious sinners the fabulously rich King Jesus became poor and died for Ninevites like us. What a king, what a king. And so my question to you as we close now is will you join me this week getting courageous, getting bold, taking a risk, sharing the king, sharing the treasure, this gospel that we have, this Jesus who we love, and to do that right here in our Nineveh this week. Let's take courage. Let's be bold in witness. Let's let's remind people in such a time as this that governments are not the ultimate answer to our problems. Jesus is. Let's let the lion out. Let's voice God's powerful word to people. Let's trust in the sufficiency and the power of the word and the spirit to change our city like it changed Nineveh. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, thank you again for this ancient word that you have inspired, revealed to us. Thank you that, Lord, our lives are transformed by you, by your word. Lord, you are so good to us. You are so amazing. You are so incomparable, glorious, mighty, powerful, beautiful, faithful, wonderful. We can't find enough words, Lord, to describe you. We thank you for your presence in our lives, for your presence in the bad times and in the good times, for teaching us, for nudging us on mission, to be on mission for you. And Lord, may we be emboldened in faith this week 
and go forth with your saving message in the power of the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.